Good afternoon. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Well, the economy of Greece only accounts for about a half of a percent of the world economy. But that hasn't stopped the two-year Greek debt crisis from being front and center in the minds of Western leaders and economists. And that's unlikely to change as long as Greek voters continue to revolt against the austerity measures that the IMF and European Union are demanding in exchange for billions in continuing financial aid. For the latest in the ongoing Greek saga, we are joined by Harvard Richard Parker, who's been an informal advisor to former Greek Prime Minister George Papandro. Welcome, Richard. Nice to be with you. Now, I, I want all our listeners to know that you've come here armed with piles of charts and graphs and data and numbers that you've crunched. But really, all we want to know is why do we care about the economy of Greece? I do not understand this. Uh, it's the tip-over effect. It's not the Greek economy itself. It's the tip-over effect. You've got a lot of economies in Europe uh, that are inter- more interdependent than ever on one another in terms of trade, but also in terms of finance. And, of course, Europe and the United States are deeply integrated. They've been major well, trading Europe, partners. But what are we dependent on Greece for? I'm, really, I'm not picking on Greece. It's a yeah, beautiful yeah. country. I love to go on vacation there. Yep. But if they if they fell out of the EU and went back to the drachma, it wouldn't be good for them. I can understand that. But this is a renegade country. We've talked about this. They, yeah. they don't pay taxes. They've got this – I mean – So here's the larger problem. We had a huge financial system crash that emanated not from Athens but from New York. And uh, the impact of that crash, as you know, has not been fully worked out in the United States. And it's not been worked out in Europe either. And so what's happened is that countries like Greece uh, have become uh, uh, the, the, the contagion source uh, for what uh, European and American leaders felt might be the spread of a disease which was default uh, mm. by the governments from uh, uh, Greece to Portugal, Portugal. to Ireland – and then to Spain, and then the horrific possibility of Italy. Because once, if, if, if Italy starts to default on its bonds, then we're all in deep, deep trouble okay, because of the size of the economy. Has, has any one of these countries received the kind of European aid that Greece is? They're, they're, they're up to, I think it's $300 billion over the past two years. Have any of the other countries received any of that? No. I mean, on a per capita basis, the Irish get pretty close because it's, a, it's an economy half the size of the Greeks. And they have, uh, they've gotten some uh, massive assistance, but other countries, no. And why is it why why is it that with the bailout, the country that that Greece still can't kind of figure out? You know, I, I understand the austerity measures that the, the its citizens feel have been too severe, but why can't they figure it out with with the bailout they've gotten? Okay, so there are a couple of a uh, couple of issues here. One of which is that a lot of the bailout money uh, has come from European partners and from the IMF and the European Central Bank to Athens and then flowed immediately right back out to pay uh, Morgan Stanley or Bank of America or Banco Santander or Deutsche Bank or uh, some other bank which owned the Greek bonds. The big thing that's happened in the last few months is that the bulk of that the, uh, the debt that Greece owes externally has been moved off the books of banks and onto the uh, the books of the IMF, the European Central Bank, etc. That's important because uh, it stops the argument that Greece can transmit the disease through its through uh, its bond default. Um, what happens is that if they default on payment of these bonds, it's essentially the, like the Federal Reserve holding the bonds, and the Federal Reserve can print money in effect. Uh, to compensate for those losses. And also taxpayers and governments have much longer time horizons. If it takes 30 years for the Greeks to pay these bonds off to the uh, other European governments, that's quite different from whether it takes three years or 30 months to pay them off to Bank of America. We've been talking about this for a couple of years now, Richard. Has has anything essentially changed? Is it still as unstable as it was? Well, I think in the following sense, uh, a negative uh, has has come about, which is that the prolonged uh, contraction of the economy, which is still going on five years after the start, it's scheduled to contract another five percentage points. And the commensurate rise in unemployment, which is now over 20 percent, it's nudging the levels of America in the middle of the Great Depression. Uh, means that the voters of Greece are terrified and angry, as you would expect voters to be any place. And uh, uh, they've had an election last month that produced no clear winner. 
they're now, uh, by virtue of their constitution, going to hold another election this coming month. It's not clear to me that that will produce uh, a government. And then you'll lurch forward into the fall with the need for a third uh, election and a third attempt to form a government. And all of that instability just feeds into this perception of Greece not being able to solve its own problems. Are there are there distinct ideas between these loose coalitions of governments about how to solve the problem? I mean, wh- why is it that, that, the, that the citizens can't figure out which, which track they want to take? I, the main divide right now is between the principal parties, that is PASOK and uh, New Democracy, um, and the, what had been the fringe parties, most importantly the fringe parties on the left. Syriza is the one that you're hearing about right now. The, the, the dividing line is whether or not they will agree to honor the debt obligations that they've undertaken already. The two big parties have said they will. The uh, fringe parties are saying they won't. Now, the fact of the matter is you're in a contracting economy. You had austerity imposed on you. Uh, they have made extraordinary cuts in their government budget and government expenses. They're uh, on the verge of actually being in balance in what we call the primary balance, which is the government's current income minus the government's current expenses, so that their deficit is made up almost entirely of uh, accumulated past debts and the need to service accumulated past debts. At that point, it may make sense for Greece to try to exit the euro because it will then be generating enough to cover its government operations. I've constantly advised against them trying to leave the euro because I think that you can see very quickly what the problem is. Leave the euro, go back to the drachma, and the value of that currency will drop to Mm -hmm. 50% or less of the euro. The Greeks import all of their petroleum. The Greeks import all of their vehicles. The Greeks import much of their medicine. The Greeks import much of their food. The kind of hardship when the cost of vehicles and gasoline and food and medicines doubles or triples uh, is going to be hellacious. Wouldn't tourism skyrocket? You know, tourism isn't uh, elastic in the way that you think. Again, we're all sort of captive to sort of standard neoclassical arguments, so much so that we don't question the assumptions. The data suggests uh, that, uh, you know, the fact that I might save another 20% Mm -hmm. on the hotel room, yeah, that's okay. (laughs) But, you know, if you're worried that you're going to encounter riots or that you're going to be robbed or that everybody from the waiter to the the, uh, hotel clerk is going to be madder than hell all of the time, who wants to go? Uh, True. So it's a it's a it's it's a high risk. Is there voter apathy in Greece? I mean, what what, what was turnout, for instance, in the uh, in the May six elections like? I don't know the exact percentage. It's it, the, it, historically the Greeks, like many European countries, had mandatory voting, uh, but it, now they really? don't. Yeah, they glad don't, we don't have that. Yeah, here. we don't have that here, <laughs> uh, and, and they haven't enforced it historically. Uh, they've had high levels of turnout compared to the United States. Hmm. So, I mean, has this austerity that's been imposed by the, the the government, you know, created sort of a death spiral in a way? There's less government spending, creates a recession, then there's lower tax revenues, and then there's need for more austerity. I mean, well, that's exactly right. And that, into... Right, and, and see, and that that was the argument that led John Maynard Keynes in the 1930s to publish. The general oh, yeah. theory. And that's what he said, which was at Kenzian, a certain point, yes. you get locked into this downward spiral in which no individual feels confident about putting his or her money into a project, into a business, into investing in the future. And when you get to that point, the economy really does freeze up at some just terribly low level with massive unemployment. That's, Keynes said, when you have to have government intervene to begin spending. The problem with all of this aid that we've been talking about over the last two or three years is that it's been aid that has been first paying off banks that aren't even Greek and now is being recycled back to the ECB, back to the IMF. Neither the ECB nor the IMF wants to take a write-off on these loans. So they send billions of, of euros, billions of dollars in every month and 85% of it turns around and leaves two days later to go back to its source to pay to pay for the, they're sending mon, money to pay off old loans is what they're right. doing and very little of it is bleeding is 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 uh, soaking in to the greek economy that's the dilemma right now 
Talking to the Kennedy School's Richard Parker, who is something of an expert on Greece and certainly an economist. Well, there was a recent survey that was done in the EU about Greek and Greek workers, and the Greeks responded by saying they thought they were among the hardest workers in the European Union. Mm-hmm. The other people in the European Union said, no, that's the opposite. They're the least hardworking. Mm-hmm. Is is there an in-between truth or is there a I think a, there's an in-between a, a truth. And here's truth. what it is, and you can appreciate it, which is this is a society which is relatively backward compared to Northern Europe or large parts of the United States. And that means that a lot of effort is not productive effort. Think of it this way. Uh, it's a country with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of small shops. The largest sector of employment is small business, unlike the United States where big and medium-sized businesses uh, uh, are the major employers. When you're a small business, you don't have a lot of productivity gains that you can squeeze out of your little taverna or squeeze out of your little corner grocery store. And so in that fundamental sense, the very fact that this is a country of entrepreneurs means that they don't have a lot of productivity gains that come from their effort. So they're, they work hard, mm. but they're inefficient uh, in that hard work because they're not employing more capital and more technology to have larger, fewer firms. Which is part of the charm. Yep. So what would happen if the EU, you know, said forget about the debt and started flushing some of these billions right into the Greek economy so they themselves could pay the debt back? What, what would happen if they, you I know, think within six months you'd start to see growth. I mean... So you, you would back that plan? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, look, these economies don't contract forever. Uh, the question is who bears the pain as they do contract. You've got to remember that shipping and tourism are the two biggest sectors in the Greek economy. Between the two of them, they're probably 25 or 30% of GDP. Shipping has not recovered globally. And there's not a whole hell of a lot that, I'm sorry, there's not a whole heck of a lot that can be done. (laughs) Whoops, bleep that one out. There's not a lot that can be done uh, 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 inside of Greece to restore international shipping. You've got to have the trade between the Chinese and the U.S. You've got to have the trade between Europe and Latin America. If that's not there, the ships are sitting idle, and there are massive amounts of capital that uh, involve loans from Greek banks to Greek shipowners that are not being repaid. So that hurts not just the shipping industry, but it hurts the Greek banking system, and that makes the Greek banking system reluctant to lend to other uh, businesses in the country because they're so worried about the size of their potential losses on the shipowners. With the tourism business, again, you know, last year was a record year for tourism to Greece. This year, they're reporting already that they're off 15%. Mm. So, um, you know, again, I, my my view is that there's been so, there have been so many television pictures of downtown Athens and rioters attacking police and all the talk of Athens is burning. That many, many people, I, I don't care what you price it at, are not going to go. They'll go to Italy. They'll go to Spain. They'll go to Portugal. They'll go to Turkey, but they're not going to come to Greece if they think that they're going to face political violence. Take me inside the psyche of the average Greek citizen. Are they angry? Are they frustrated? Are they embarrassed? I mean, all, where... all of the, I think all of the above. I think all of the above. I mean, I, you know, this... How can I how can I describe it, Emily? I'm I'm a I'm a Northern European by background. I am I am Mr. Wasp, and <laughs> and as a consequence, I'm not always comfortable with the amount of shouting and hand waving that goes across most of the Mediterranean. Not unique to Greece, uh, and I think that the Greeks have paid a very high price for this very public emotionalism, meaning the mm. following. If you want to criticize a, an opposition politician, you don't attack his values. You don't attack his his family life. You accuse him of corruption. Now, yeah, there's corruption in Greece. There's no question that there's corruption in Greece. But we did a lot of surveying uh, in the last couple of years uh, asking Greeks, well, what's your direct experience of corruption? And first of all, we found that half Greek, half of all Greeks report never having had any experience of corruption with the government. And you can ask any Greek. They have no experience of policemen pulling them over, you know, threatening them with a ticket and expecting a bribe. They, they, I mean, I, I, I've tried out these narratives on Greeks and they get wide-eyed. Well, no, that why would... Who would do that? Who would do that, <laughs> right. And so the surveys tell us that where what, when they talk about corruption, what they're angriest about is when they go into hospitals, they, have, they, they feel that they have to put a little envelope with cash in front of the doctor to make sure that they get the prescription that they want, to, to be sure that they go to the head of the line for surgery, to be sure that they really? get to see this 
specialist. Uh, and that's that literally has a name for it. It's called fakalaki, and and it's uh, it's the fakalaki that that people report is the most common experience of corruption in Greece. Now, working inside the Greek government, there are severe problems, but it's not simply that it's uniform corruption. It, it, it again is a, a case of uh, under uh, uh, underdevelopment in the extreme. For example. Uh, their social security agency, which manages basically seven million, seven and a half million accounts, when I first visited it in 2010, was doing all of the record keeping manually. Oh. Their social security agency for seven million people employs more people than the social security administration does in the United States. Probably seven... more efficient. I mean, no, no. <laughs> so, is it? So, I mean, so computerization is just terrible. They don't have it. They don't have it computerized. No, and as they and as they've gone about computerizing and they've gone about coordinating uh, activity with things like the registry that records births and deaths. They've been able to take 200,000 people off the rolls who were like Chicago voters who had been dead for 20 years but were still voting in Chicago, who in the case of Greece were still receiving benefits, right? So there are lots of efficiency gains just from technology that can be made right away. There are lots of efficiency gains from uh, modern human resource management policies being put in place. There are are a lot of things that would improve the functioning of Greek government. Are you... Consulting them at all anymore? Are you done now that George Papandreou? No, I'm out? going back in oh, July for a three-week-long stint. I so. need to listen to you. All right. Richard Parker from the Kennedy School of Government. Always a pleasure to have you here. Nice to be with you again. Up next, why are thousands of being given powerful antipsychotic medication when none of them have been diagnosed with a mental illness? You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH. Boston Public Radio. If you say that you are mine, I'll be here till the end of time. So you got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? It's always taste, taste, taste. WGBH programs exist because of you. And the Babson MBA Fast Track program. You can discover what it means to be an entrepreneurial leader. More information available June 8th at the MBA Visitor Program at the Wellesley Campus. Babson.edu slash fast track. And the Museum of Science, now showing To the Arctic, presented by Warner Brothers and IMAX. The Museum of Science is proud to support Radio Nova. Weekday mornings here on 89.7 WGBH. And from members of the Great Blue Hill Society, whose estate and planned giving arrangements to WGBH create a lasting legacy and ensure public media for generations to come. What will your legacy be? Mistakes happen. We are human. This high school in California's Silicon Valley combines academic rigor with religious devotion. You are a Muslim, you are American, and you need to be proud of both, and you need to be able to bring those two together. It's a private Islamic high school, and it's giving children of Muslim families a safe place for study. We visit next time on The World. Coming up at 3 here on 89.7 WGBH. Saturday, July 14th, it's the WGBH Fun Fest. Cool off with some of the best ice cream around, like Ben and Jerry's Boston and Friendly's. Rock out to live performances from family favorites like Steve Songs, Ben Rudnick, Fluky and the Beans, Rick Golden, and others. Meet PBS Kids characters, enjoy rides, games, and more. Tickets are going fast, so don't delay. Get the whole scoop at WGBH.org slash funfest. MIT's 100K Entrepreneurship Competition has generated billions in profit in its 23-year history. Hear what ideas this year's competitors came up with on Innovation Hub, Saturday morning at 7 here on WGBH Radio. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. When I read in the Boston Globe recently that nursing homes are handing out antipsychotic medications to nursing home residents like they were lifesavers, I wasn't at all surprised. But the data the Globe pulled together was shocking. Federal data shows 185,000 nursing home residents in the U.S. received antipsychotic drugs in 2010, with Massachusetts among the states with the highest percentage of residents receiving these drugs. And keep in mind, these are people who have not been diagnosed with any kind of mental illness. The Globe went so far as to make the link between antipsychotic drug use and staffing levels in nursing homes. 
Guess what? The fewer registered nurses, the more use of antipsychotics. And I'm joined here in the studio by the Boston Globe's Kay Lazar, who is the chief reporter on this story. Welcome, Kay. Thank you for having me. Well, as I said, not at all surprised. I've been on a tear about this for probably two decades because old people in general are overmedicated. They, they, they take this stew of medications in these things that, you know, these little they don't even know what they're taking at some point, and somebody's helping them taking it, and they don't know whether they take them this day or that day. But this is different because these are medications being handed out by people who do know what they're giving them. That's what you would hope. That's and what you would hope. they give it to them for one reason and one reason only, and I can let you take it from there. Well, what we found is most frequently the, the residents who were given these antipsychotic drugs often were reported to be, in, at least the data showed, had behavior issues, uh, you know, aggressive, mashed wa- potatoes. wandering, okay. yeah. you know, behavior, frankly, very common yeah, with right. dementia. And right. so that's really what... But, but they're not psychotic in the classic sense of the world. Well, no, you wouldn't think so. I mean, the, the federal regulators define psychotic very specifically. They don't have schizophrenia. They don't have schizoaffective disorder, et cetera. Mostly they have dementia, uh, some yes, sort form yes. of dementia, typically Alzheimer's. Exactly. That's, what they're, that's why they're in there. So... How did you go about this? Did you, you, I know you filed a Freedom of Information request, but to who? To the federal government? To individual nursing homes? How did you go about collecting the data? It was quite an odyssey, and we had no idea it would take as long as it did. We filed a Freedom of Information request in March of 2010, thinking with... Oh, I'm sorry, with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is the federal agency that regulates nursing homes. And we were told from the beginning that this was information that would not be made public because they, they felt it violated patient confidentiality. What did you ask them for? I mean, we you... asked them for a mountain of data <laughs> because we knew that yeah. to really analyze it and get a clear picture, we would need a mountain mm-hmm. of data. So what we asked for is antipsychotic use in each and every nursing home in the country, which was more than 15,000 of them. We also asked for staffing levels, registered nurses, certified nursing assistants, which actually do the hands-on care, um, we asked for whether the, the percentage of patients who are Medicare versus Medicaid, because that can have a really direct bearing. We asked for how many residents were in the nursing home. We asked for a lot of data about the nursing home so we could really see what were the factors that seemed to most influence or be linked. So it took you about 18 months to get the data, but did they give it all to you? Eventually, yes. It took us actually 19 months. We received it in late October of 2011, um, and it was a lot of pushing and a lot of lobbying. And what happened during that 19 months is very enlightening in that in that time period, the federal inspector general came out with a report in May of 2011, and he had analyzed six months of data um, from Medicare data, and it also showed a huge overuse of the medications. And that prompted some congressional hearings. And during this time, CMS started to work with the the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services regulators started to work with nursing homes on this issue. So the world sort of changed in the 19 months. It has gone down. That use has gone down. Well, you also obviously did some empirical study too. And one of the people I think you looked at or knew, and this is, um, I'm going to play a little bit of a uh, an interview that was on The Takeaway uh, in the beginning of the month with Alison Weingartner. She's describing the overuse of antipsychotics in her elderly mother's nursing home. What I came to find out was in uh, April of 2007, they began prescribing Seroquel, a very powerful drug, and she was giving 100 milligrams per day for over three years. And um, I was unaware of the effects that Seroquel could have on my mother, including uh, seizures and falling. So... Seroquel, is that one of the drugs that was frequently handed out? I'm not familiar with it, and what does it do? Seroquel is one of a number of um, antipsychotics, one of the newer class of antipsychotics, and it is designed for people, and it is approved by the Food and Drug Administration for people with, like, for instance, schizophrenia, Schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. serious mental illness. Um, In fact, Food and Drug uh, Administrators twice in the last 10 years have put out black box warnings, which are the most dire warnings they can put out, Two healthcare professionals saying, do not give these class of drugs to elderly people with dementia because it raises the risk for lethal side effects. Okay, so in this case, um, Alison Weingarten's mother was getting 100 milligrams a day for over three years. What kind of effects would that have had on her? 
Well, what Allison noticed is that her mother increasingly started falling. Um, that is not uncommon. That is certainly listed as Older a, people have that problem in, in general. general. But what it does is it, it really, it can, uh, some of the listed side effects for Seroquel is sudden lightheadedness or dizziness, particularly when you stand up. So it's not, and at that point, her mother was still ambulatory. She was able to wander. And Allison feels that one of the reasons she was given this at the particular nursing home was to try and stop her from wandering. Exactly. Rather than give her appropriate activities that would be matched with her ability. She also feels like the, the nursing home is responsible for, the, for her mother breaking her hip. Well, there's another little another comment here from Allison. She's talking about, you know, trying to figure out why they would have given her these drugs. And here's what she said. No, I don't feel that my mother exhibited any kind of violent behavior. She was very docile in terms of um, being bathed and, uh, you know, all her behavior. She wasn't aggressive in any way. So I feel it was overkill in her situation and created some really damaging effects for her health. Now, Allison also went to the nursing home and tried to get them to take her off of that. What happened then? Well, what she says is that she is she is her mother's health care proxy, so she would have the legal authority to do that. And she was told, we, we wanted to talk to the nursing home, by the way, and made requests, and they declined our request. So I really only have Allison's side. Um, but what Allison told me is that they basically said, no, this is, this is what your mother needs. Um, and she was in the process of really trying to find another place for her mother when her mother was but, but those people, as I understand it, can't insist on giving somebody a drug if the family doesn't approve it. That's true, although I think Allison was on a learning curve. Um, you know, you learn as you go. I mean, who knows about this stuff until you actually face it in a crisis or et cetera. I mean, she did a lot of education on her own, but she she felt her mother was there for at least a year where she felt she got really good care. Mm. And what happened is the nursing home changed its mission. It was phasing out its Alzheimer's unit and instead taking more Medicare short-term rehab patients, which are a lot more uh, higher reimbursement. The, the nursing home gets a lot more money for doing that kind of thing. So they were phasing out the Alzheimer's unit. And you know, I think that she just wasn't getting the care she probably should have gotten. But in the beginning, Allison really loved the care she was getting. You know, I have to say, I've been in a fair number of these places, not not with anybody close to me in my family, but other people's mothers and relatives, and I've been incredibly impressed around Massachusetts anyway. Been in the Alzheimer's units. I mean, this is a tough, tough situation. They have to be locked in these units. They, they wander even within, you know, the unit itself, and they're repetitive, and they say the same, and it's like... It's a tough situation. It's very tough. But we were able to go to nursing homes that were doing an amazing job. We went to one in Littleton, Life Care Center of Neshoba Valley. And it's amazing how much staff they have. But they were doing activities. They yeah, were that's what one I saw, on one. The great and, activities. And yeah. Just amazing. And we should note that the uh, federal regulators today at 1 o'clock are having a press conference where they're going to announce a huge initiative to combat this problem. And one of the things they are going to promise to do, at least according to the advanced material is they're going to start releasing data on each and every nursing home about their antipsychotic use. They're also going to, according to the press release, um, be offering more training to nursing homes about alternatives, behavior modification, activities that are appropriate that can lessen the anxiety and perhaps the need to wander, and so perhaps the need for You know, this is such a tough thing for the families, too, because no one wants to see their elderly parent or loved one in a situation where they're losing their mind. I mean, the dementia is such an awful thing, and it consumes them. And so they probably ask about drugs. I'm sure the families ask about drugs. And this, this other one, this Aricept, which I have said for years, it's ridiculous. It's borderline a fraud. It's like, you know, we, we want things. It, it sounds like Aricept, like it's going to be this scepter, <laughs> and it's going to, like, bring your brain synapses back together. No, it isn't. But we, we want to find something. We're desperate to find anything. Absolutely. And, you know, that is frustrating because there really is nothing to treat dementia and Alzheimer's. But one of the things I did hear from nursing home providers is that often they hear from family members, please give exactly. my mother exactly something. What I'm she's, getting at. Yep. she's so agitated. Yep. She's just yep. please calm her. She's just yep. she's not having a great quality of life. So it's also a campaign I think federal regulators are doing to also target families to help them understand that there are alternatives. But there needs to be more training because right now it's pretty widespread that 
they hand them a pill. So these antipsychotic drugs, do they, for the most part, make um, people lethargic? Are they just less apt to, I mean, are they just, because even if used on uh, schizophrenia, I don't know that much about it, but it, it sort of changes their modus operandi, but it doesn't necessarily make them lethargic. Um, in many cases, it does. Um, with Allison's mother, it did not. She had a very strong constitution. She was a woman who walked every day, and so they kept giving it to her four times a day, and she kept wandering until, frankly, she was hit by apparently a food cart and fell and uh. broke her hip. But often, uh, other people that we've interviewed, they said that they noticed a change mm-hmm. almost overnight, that their mother or father was given this medication, and they came to visit, and they were in a stupor. Um, even though they have dementia, they were still able to, before this, recognize their child or say some words or make eye contact, and now they're just almost catatonic. Talking to the Boston Globe's Kay Lazar, who's written a piece a couple weeks ago about the use of antipsychotic uh, drug use in nursing homes throughout the United States, with Massachusetts being among the highest states with the highest percentage of residents receiving these drugs. What's the difference, by the way, between these antipsychotic drugs and just like a plain old sedative, is that also frequently used? There are a lot of drugs that are used. I mean, they will use antidepressants, although hopefully to treat depression. But um, oh, that's the other thing. Yeah. Is your mother depressed? It's like, what are you talking about? I mean, that's the other thing. Yeah. Honestly, they're asking the, 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 the families if their mother or father or loved one is depressed. And it's like, they've got dementia. It's like, you know, who knows if they're depressed? The patient doesn't know if they're depressed. I, I get so frustrated <laughs> by this. It's like, what are you talking about? Well, theoretically, good good experts should be able to tell because one of the things I did hear is that too frequently depression is not treated. But it should not be one of the things I also heard and studies are starting to show is nursing homes that perhaps do not have the great training are switching from antipsychotics because there's so much focus on it now to antidepressants, which may also may not be appropriate for that patient, but also tends to calm them down and may also have some serious side effects in elderly people. So, you know, it, exactly how each drug works, I'm not exactly yeah, sure. Not That's sure. not my I was going to ask you that if, if uh, antipsychotics have any physiognomy effects. I mean, do they do anything internally? Do they change your, your system at all? Um, I actually don't know of the pharmacology yeah. of it. I mean, I know it's supposed to work in your brain uh, yeah. chemistry to help that, you know, ease the, the agitation. But exactly how an antipsychotic works as opposed to an antidepressant, I have to say I haven't gotten that kind of expertise. So what kind of response did you get from people who have parents, elderly loved ones in nursing homes where they're like, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what's going on. Overwhelming from all over the country. Um, Just absolutely horror stories. Um, Some stories about good nursing homes, but often stories that were very similar to Allison's um, that they have tried or they didn't know and then their mother or father was falling or falling asleep, et cetera. I've also heard from and someone in the state of Florida in a big advocacy group that they're going to try now and start their own advocacy to get the the, the, ad, the antipsychotics down. So I think this has energized a lot of advocates that, you know, and there have been great advocacy groups out there, uh, the Center for um, Medicare Advocacy, Massachusetts Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. There have been a lot of groups out there that have been banging down the doors for years trying to get the federal government to pay attention to this and to make the data available so consumers can see. I mean, that is one thing consumers should know is that at CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they make a lot of information available on their website at Nursing Home Compare on each and every nursing home in the country. So you can kind of do your homework. They haven't made this information available, but they promise they will do that later this year. You really wonder, Kay, how this all got going. I mean, antipsychotic drugs haven't been around forever. How did they start using them in this situation? Oh, well, actually, what I have heard, Toby Edelman, who was just a great staff attorney at the um, Center for Medicare Advocacy, testified in Congress, and I've had long conversations with her. And back in the 70s, I mean, she remembers testifying about this issue. Years and years ago, nursing homes were really not good at what they would do is physically restrain patients, Mm -hmm. tie them down. And that, finally, when that became known, it was quite an uproar, and the federal government 
focused on that. I did a focus campaign trying to really educate people, this is not appropriate. And as that sort of eased back, what people seem to suggest is that they then the use of antipsychotics grew. We tried to look at that in the data, but unfortunately the data couldn't show that because we could only get six years worth of data and this campaign to get rid of, you know, physical restraints, tying patients down has been, you know, eased out much before that. But we were trying to see if that we could actually see that in the data and we could not. But as your research showed, they're making they're prescribing these drugs and forcing them on these people for the most part without any kind of a formal diagnosis. How can they do that? How, that's not good medicine. They can do that legally. You're right. How can they do that? Legally, once a drug is approved by the FDA, the Food and ah. Drug Administration, it can be used off-label, meaning it can be used for any other purposes. So that's... You don't what, need to have a formal diagnosis? No, no. How can that be? It's just the way our, our system is uh, with any kind of drugs, not just antipsychotics, that you know, physicians and other prescribers are free to use medicines that have been approved by the FDA for purposes other than what they were approved for. Even if you don't know what the effect is going to be? I, I find that hard to believe. Well, theoretically, they're supposed to know. And, and in, with antipsychotics, they should know because the FDA has put out at least two very severe warnings saying, you really shouldn't be doing this. You should be very careful. They could, you know, create fatal heart problems um, pneumonia. That was the two issues that it can really lead to a higher risk of death. Did you get any pushback at all from operators of nursing homes? Uh, during the reporting? Yeah. Yes. Um, certainly there were a number that did did not return our calls. No, no, no. But I mean, you say, you know, th- there's another shoot, there's another side to this story. And it, it's effective for these reasons, and we don't over-medicate, and we've, we've uh, you know, changed their quality of life for the better. Did you get any arguments like that? Sure. Sure. And, fa- and we try to reflect that a bit in, in certainly in the stories that they, they felt that, you know, some of these people who with dementia, they're just so agitated that these drugs are improving their quality of life. And that Which could be true. It could be true. Without knowing each and every patient, it's hard to know. Um, it, it, it's difficult. It's difficult. This is a difficult population. But the growing consensus is, is that these drugs should not be used very often in this population. I mean, Kay Lazar from the Boston Globe, it's just, I'm really riveted by this. It's just such a huge, as I said, it's, it's beyond that. It's drugs in general with old people. You can get, pick up on that one next. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Emily. All right, up next, Kathleen Turner. No, not the actress. This Kathleen Turner is a much bigger deal. She's the newly minted Massachusetts Teacher of the Year. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you and the Boston Speaker Series, bringing to Boston national and global figures from around the world. The series returns to Symphony Hall for seven evenings. More information online at bostonspeakerseries.org. And in you window. Within my industry, I tell everybody I know who I'm friendly with. They're missing the boat if they're not underwriting public radio. Jeff Kaplan, co-owner. And within the Boston marketplace, I think the best place to put their underwriting dollars is public radio and WGBH. To learn how WGBH can benefit your business, visit WGBH.org slash sponsorship. On the next Cali Crossley show, we talk to Peter Kaminsky. His years as a chef and food critic came with an occupational hazard, an ever-growing waistline. After learning that he was borderline obese and pre-diabetic, he had to make a choice, lose weight or suffer the consequences. In his new book, he writes about how he dropped 35 pounds and has kept it off by eating foods packed with flavor that are good to eat and gratifying. Today at 1 on WGBH. It's time to spring into action for the 47th annual WGBH Spring Auction. Bid on fine jewelry, gift certificates, exciting vacations, weekend getaways, and even a brand new Toyota Prius, donated by your New England Toyota dealer. 
every winning bid supports WGBH radio and television. So not only will you get a great deal, you'll feel great while you're doing it. But act fast. The spring auction ends on May 31st. Place your bids now at auction.wgbh.org. Two big environmental no-nos, food scraps dumped in landfills and methane gas emissions coming from dairy farms. I'm Tony Waterman. Hear how one Massachusetts farm is turning those two negatives into power. Later today on WGBH's All Things Considered. Welcome back. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Sharon High School French teacher and Walpole resident Kathleen Turner has received the state's highest honor for education educators. She's been chosen Massachusetts Teacher of the Year. She was selected from a group of six finalists who went through a rigorous selection process, which included an essay writing contest, a filming, a sample lesson, interviews with a panel. In addition to her classroom duties, Turner, who graduated from Harvard in 1994, established an exchange program with a school in France, and regularly leads spring break trips to Paris. Très bien. And Kathleen Turner joins me now in the studio. Welcome. Thank you. How come you're not in school today? Uh, yeah, I'm just giving school today. Are you <laughs> That's really? what the teacher of the year does. No, uh, I taught my two <laughs> classes this morning. and uh, Zipped up here from Sharon. Zipped up here from Sharon. When is graduation, by the way? Uh, on Sunday. Oh, so it's, gosh, it's earlier and earlier. It, I know. I Sharon like High School is out... It, now it's only the seniors ended on March, uh, May twenty fifth. Used to be June twenty one, twenty two every year. Uh, yeah, out earlier, earlier, earlier. The the underclassmen leave the eighteen. We start before Labor Day. Okay, mm-hmm. I was going to say because it still got it doesn't have, still have to be one hundred eighty one days. Right? Am I missing uh, that? Not for the seniors, I don't think. Oh, not for the seniors. I'm not sure what their number is, but I feel like the year just flies by with the. With the seniors, yeah. Especially, uh, does a trip to Paris count as classroom time? By the way, well, it's during vacation. Oh, so but the but the exchange that I did to Rouen uh, did count as classroom time, so that we were there for two school weeks. Yeah, which was <laughs> fantastic. As my father used to say, the the more you pay, the less you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, this was this really was a really rigorous. You knew you were in the in the in the hunt, so to speak. Yes. Um, I was nominated back in uh, February by my department head, Dr. Christina Dolan. Um, What I didn't know was that after the nomination, I would get a pack of essays to write. Um, In about three weeks' time, I had to write five essays, including my biography, including my educational philosophy, and then discussing some of the issues facing public education today, teacher accountability, mentoring programs. and then I made it to the next round, uh, which I found out in mid-March, wrote a couple more essays, had to videotape a 30-minute segment of my class and kind of assess that. And then when I made it to the semi, the finalist round, from the semifinalist round, I had to go in front of 10 teachers, administrators, a uh, rep from the MTA, a rep from Hannaford Supermarkets, who's the co-sponsor of this, uh, and do a 40 do an interview for 45 minutes. And that was where you brought that sculpture. You came cause sculpture. You came on my TV show a week or so ago, and you brought this very cool sculpture. Just describe it. Um, I, we were told that we had to, for the first five minutes, introduce ourselves as a teacher and as a person. And they said that we could bring technology. And I thought, oh, for five minutes, I'm not going to bring technology and show a PowerPoint. So I actually constructed a sculpture that represented me as a teacher um, with pictures of things that I teach and believe in, but then made a, a sort of a balance and talked about the need to always find a balance while teaching between being too flexible or too rigid or too fast or too slow or too intricate, but not complex enough um, so that I could have a visual of, of what I believe. Yeah, so part of it was a scale of justice, which had all kinds of things hanging off it—a pair of lips—and I can't even remember all what were all those things. Um, there was the, the there was a Gumby for the not to be too flexible, and then a, a knight for not to be too rigid. Um, but I also had the the Mr. Potato Head lips, ears, and a, a little book that I had made, and a um, a pencil to represent the four skill areas of language teaching and balancing the need for equal amounts of reading, writing, listening, and speaking practice. In class, you came right out of Harvard, 1994, and went right into teacher teaching. How did you develop a philosophy? Um, I had done the undergraduate teacher education program at Harvard, so I had taken classes and I had done my student teaching uh, at Westwood High School for a semester. So I don't know that I had a fully de- developed philosophy uh, in 1994. That kind of comes with time, but I had had numerous teaching experiences, and a lot comes after you're on the job because it's hard to know what you don't know um, before you start. And it's, it's 
teaching and seeing the mistakes that you make, the mistakes that you make, which are daily, and then assessing and rethinking and replanning and restructuring. And it's really a work in progress. I don't think that that ever ends. Even even master teachers are constantly reflecting and changing and making adjustments. How did you get in, interested in French in the first place? Uh, it's funny because I was not from, I'm not from a family who ever spoke French at home. We never up? traveled. Uh, Northbridge, Massachusetts, uh, small town south of Worcester. And I went to French class in eighth grade. We had a, an exploratory program where we had 12 weeks of French, 12 weeks of Latin, 12 weeks of Spanish. And French was the last segment. And I walked in that first day and I remember sitting down and this very dynamic teacher was bouncing around the room saying these words that I didn't understand but sounded really amazing and really cool. And he was gesturing and writing things on the board. And I thought, wow, I love this. I'm, I had known that I wanted to teach. I Something in me when I was in kindergarten told me that. But I went home and told my parents on that day that I would be a high school French teacher. Really? And it never, I never deviated from that. I mean, yeah, because here you are with a Harvard degree, which is Im- impressive. I mean, you, you could do uh, other things. I could, but I think teaching is the most important thing. Uh, no one else could do their job if they didn't have teachers behind them. So um, while I c- certainly could do other things, I feel like I'm preparing 100 students a year to do those other things. And if I can be a positive influence in their life, whether it be speaking French, whether it be developing an awareness for other cultures and having them understand that being different does not equal bad, um, or just helping them be a respectful human being, then I feel like I'm contributing to society in that way. One of your practices is a total immersion in the language. How long does it take, uh, you know, your average high school kid, a ninth or 10th grader, to kind of pick up on what you're talking about or become even semi-cognitive of of what what the concepts are as opposed to even speaking the language? Um, I think from the beginning you have to train, tra- train students when I teach French one. From day one, it's only French. and they. But it's not just talking to them blankly in front of the room. It's the gestures. It's the actions. It's, it's miming. It's drawing something on the board. It's associating words and pictures and not words with the English definition. Um, so they're... They're starting from the from the very first day. They're starting to make connections, and they can leave the first day saying their name and who they are. And then, little by little, by repetition, 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 um, they start to catch on. I mean, it's they're certainly not fluent by the end of a year um, when you're only in class for an hour, and then you go home and you don't have contact with other French speakers. It's a slow process, um, but it's. It just like a, a baby growing up has to have the constant input, students studying have to have that constant input for the hour um, every day and, and, and practice it. And they they may not be able to respond in a paragraph at the beginning, just like a baby who's born is going to start by saying some syllables and then saying some words and then mm-hmm. starting to string them together. That's what my students do. and <laughs> They laugh when because they're 15 and I tell them that they're really two. Um, in French world, because, and I encourage them, if you can say a word, get it out, get the word out, because that's a success. And it's getting comfortable saying the word that will get you more comfortable starting to, str- starting to string them together to, to communicate. Talking to Massachusetts teacher of the world, of the year, the world, <laughs> well, sure. of the year, year, year. Kathleen, Kathleen Turner, and you're actually now competing for the National Award as well. well. What about some of the socioeconomic challenges? I'm looking right here on a story that just popped up on Boston dot com about the state planning to fix the schools in Lawrence, Massachusetts. This big overhaul, you know, they're you know taking some of the elements from charter schools, and you know they say it's a first of a kind thing, but they've got enormous problems there. Some of it is a language barrier because a lot of the kids attending the high schools in Lawrence speak only Spanish. Do you have yeah. that kind of difficulty in Sharon? Um, we don't. We don't have the language barrier as much. There are. Increasing numbers of students for whom English is a second language. We have students who speak Russian. We have students who speak Asian languages. Um, it's not it's not posing an obstacle for the school system. I think for, in individual cases, it's difficult for students to, to acclimate both linguistically and culturally because if you were born and grew up in a different country, not only is it coming here and having to speak a different language, but it's adapting to how we run our schools. It's adapting to what we eat. It's adapting to 
perhaps re- religious practices. So it's a whole mm-hmm. um, it's a whole process that I think is difficult for students and families and schools because there's not one there's not one fix it. You can't you can't you can't attach one solution that's going to solve all of the problems because every the the difficulty with education is that every student is an individual, exactly. um, and ironically we're told we're supposed to be differentiating differentiating our classes for different learning styles, different assessment styles. Yet there are a lot of attempts to have very standardized solutions or standardized tests that we're supposed to be preparing students for at the same time. Yeah, what would you change? Anything, not necessarily about Sharon High School, but public education in general. I think that the funding is obviously a, a huge issue. And I, I think you that if you, if you look at from town to town, the disparity, disparity yeah. between towns that have the haves to, and the have-nots. Haves and the have-nots, the towns where students have typically educated parents, where they've had the opportunity to travel, where they have the opportunity to have tutors after school when they don't understand chemistry or math uh, or the MCAS subjects. And then you go to a town where parents are working in the evenings and a student has to take care of a sister or a brother and then come to school and try to function the next day. Um, it, it sets up it, it sets up a huge disparity between what teachers can accomplish, what students can accomplish. How would you change um, it? We, <laughs> if I could rule the world, um, I think that there should be some way that property tax not be the primary source of funding for public education. If, in my mind, what if all of the property taxes went into a main pool and then it got redistributed per pupil in the state? So that everybody was operating. Not town by town. But not town just, by town. Yeah. Or maybe to do it by the nation. I mean, I a former student was doing some teaching um, through a volunteer program in Louisiana. And she said by mid-month, most of her students did not come to school because the food, the welfare and food stamps had run out. We're, when kids can't come to school because of their basic needs aren't being met, what if we redistributed all property taxes throughout the country so that everyone was operating on the same playing field, and it may not be enough, but then we can, as a start, yeah, but we could work from what there. If I would say, hey, but that's the reason I moved to Wellesley. That's what people are going to say. But then you wouldn't have to move to a certain town to get an education. Every every town would would be, would be have the same advantages, and you wouldn't have teachers vying to be in certain places or families vying to be in certain places. I think it's hard when there's school choice and students all choose or families choose to go to one school. It leaves the school in their home district at a loss. Um and it's, it's unfa- I think it's unfair to our, mm-hmm. our students. All right. Kathleen Turner, Teacher of the Year from Sharon High School. Good luck in the national competition as well. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. Thanks. All right. That's going to do it for us this afternoon. We'll be back tomorrow at noon. Women are starting a lot of businesses here in the U.S., but they are not creating a lot of jobs. How come? We'll dig into that. And stay with us now for the Kelly Crossley Show coming up next. How would you like to lose 35 pounds by thinking about food more, not less? Hmm, we'll stick around for that. And tonight on my television show, Greater Boston, I don't even know what we've got. Oh, no, we've got the three Dancing with the Renoirs. Jared Bowen has that. You'd love to see that. That's tonight at 7 on Channel 2. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio. On the web at WGBH.org, Boston Public Radio. I'm Emily Rooney. Have a great afternoon.